Father, we do agree with those prayers and desire that you, in fact, would be glorified today and that your name would be lifted up and that your word would communicate clearly to us as you intend it and that we would be responsive to it as well. So we desire this morning that uh, we have clarity of mind and clarity of thought to understand the details of what you revealed and if there be any hindrance, anything that would prevent us from gaining what you would have for us this morning, that uh, if there be sin, that we would confess it, if there be distractions, may we put them away. And we desire this morning to have the full benefit of what you would have in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, when we come to the book of Romans... Paul argues in some detail, like a lawyer would before a judge, before the Supreme Court, the ultimate court. And in that, he uses arguments, and he uses logic, he uses evidence, he uses whatever is at his disposal to convince us of certain doctrines, certain truths. And that runs through the entire book of Romans, one of the most organized, one of the most detailed, one of the most theological of all of the books of the New Testament. Well, probably the most. (laughs) Not one of, but the most. And one of the arguments that he uses, which would be very, very important, this doctrine that he has set forth that talks about God's provision of righteousness, it's through God acting, God justifying, God is the one that provides it because man is condemned and has no other option and is unable to provide that for himself. So God has provided justification, chapter 3, 21 through the end of chapter 5. And he's arguing to an audience of the first century that was composed largely, even in Rome, of a certain percentage of Jewish people. And even those that were not Jewish were familiar with Judaism, and some of them were familiar with the law and the Old Testament. So if this doctrine can't hold up against Scripture, as we should evaluate and examine every doctrine, then it's not a very biblical doctrine. So he spends all of chapter 4 showing that this justification by faith, after he's argued for the provision of it in chapter 3, He's laying out the pattern for justification as, and I'm just using P's here, or the evidence from the Old Testament, you could say, but the pattern for justification is found in Scripture. The Scriptures of that day would have been Old Testament Scripture. And if it doesn't hold up there, then Paul would be branded and should be branded a heretic. So we've been looking at this pattern of justification, and just to remind you a little bit, Well, before we do that, chapter 5 kind of expands the idea, the benefits or the profit from justification. But back in chapter 4, last time, just to remind you, we looked at verses 11 through 12, and this whole chapter deals with Old Testament concepts, Judaism, Jews, God's Word, would have been the Old Testament at the time. And one of the main issues that he deals with is... Are there any examples of justification by faith and faith alone, apart from the law, apart from works? And the prime example, in fact, every example, but the prime one would be Abraham himself. So he develops Abraham 
as his prime evidence for justification by faith goes right to Genesis 15, 6, where the scriptures declare that he is justified or imputed righteousness as a result of simply faith. So the next thing that Jews confronted was the issue of circumcision, and we dealt with that last time. And the Jewish attitude or the idea was if you were circumcised, you're in. In other words, that's your ticket. No matter how you live, no matter what internal things took place inside of you, that was kind of the key. Much like in our culture, people say if you're baptized, even as an infant, don't even know what's going on, then you're in. And Paul argues against that, and he concludes verses 11 and 12 in that discussion. And then 13 that we'll look at today goes beyond that. Connie. Okay, so that would leave women out because they don't Absolutely. Except that do you think that's why the Muslim or the Islamic faith circumcises women? I don't know if there's no I don't I don't know if there's a connection there, but but in reality a woman is one with her husband. So marriage was very important as well. And she was part of the community as well, so it transferred over as well. But it was very, very important, and it was considered essential for, quote, salvation or justification. So, verse 11. Not all Muslims practice that, quote, unquote, female circumcision, and it's not in the Quran. This is something that's left over from pagans, well, prior to Islam. And I think it's more, more of a, how do I put it? More of a preventative, I guess, is the way to do it, to kind of keep women in check from being unfaithful. Basically destroys their desires. 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision. The sign, in other words, a sign points to something else. Just like the rainbow was a sign of the Noahic Covenant, And it was to remind and point to the fact that God entered into a covenant that he would not destroy the world through a flood once again. It's a reminder. It was a sign that pointed to something else. The miracles of Jesus in John's gospel are called signs. Same word. In other words, they point to something beyond just the physical healing or the turning of water into wine. I mean, that was significant in itself, but it pointed to something even greater beyond that, pointed to the fact that the person that was performing these was God himself. So that's what a sign does. So circumcision was a sign, and it was intended to be a sign of something internal. In other words, a real change of heart, you might say, or a real regeneration. And I think there was regeneration in the Old Testament. I think chapter 4 gives evidence Abraham being justified. So it's a sign. He received the sign and a seal. A seal validates. A seal confirms, makes official, just like an engineer's seal on a document. We talked about Bruce last time. Sealing documents with his stamp, his seal, and his signature underneath. He's authorizing or authenticating that this document, to the best of his knowledge, is free from distortion or error and represents the ideas that he's putting down on paper. 
So it validates, so it's a validation. In other words, it's an external validation so that others would say, oh, that person must be regenerated. That person must belong to God. That person must have some connection with the nation of Israel. So it's a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So that's the point. He was justified before it was not the circumcision that justified him, as was the idea in Judaism. So that's his whole point. So that, now we've already developed all that. This is kind of coming to the end of his little discussion in verse 12. It has a purpose, in other words, his justification, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. In other words, there's a whole community that the Abrahamic covenant, he's going to expand upon that in verse 13. The Abrahamic covenant had Judaism or Jewish people or the nation of Israel reaching out to the nations, blessing the nations. And Paul elaborates in Galatians 3 that ultimately it would be through Messiah, through the Messiah and what he would accomplish. So, those that are justified by faith can claim Abraham as father spiritually, and that's a point made elsewhere in Scripture as well, so that he might be the father of all who believe, believers, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be, what? That's that word again, we've seen that several times. Imputed or credited, imputed to their accounts. In other words, there's nothing in them. Their account is bankrupt, empty. Actually, it's got negatives in it. But they're credited with righteousness. And then verse 12, and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, in other words, Jewish people that not only are nationally Jews and are identified with the nation, biologically, by DNA are Jewish, related to Abraham physically, not only that, but the father of the circumcision, of those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith. In other words, they also believe in Messiah. Faith of our father Abraham, the same faith that brought Abraham justification. So, following in the steps of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, that didn't come till chapter 17. And that's why I laid out the chronology, because it's very important. And the chronology is going to be important in the passage we're going to look at in verse 13. So the chronology, he's born, and I'm just following the scriptures here. They're not quite in order, and this is not unusual. I gave you an example of uh, chapter 10 is... In the text, before chapter 11, obviously, but the event that caused chapter 10 is recorded in the next chapter, chapter 11. In other words, we have the nations and ethnic groups, and then in chapter 11, we have the explanation as to where they came from. Uh, Something similar, and this occurs elsewhere in Genesis as well. Things are not always laid out chronologically. So in chapter 11, we have the mention of Abraham being born, Outside of Genesis, we have a little note in Joshua. In other words, Abraham was not justified because of anything in him. He was an idolater. In fact, he was part of the regular culture. God called him out of the culture. And in chapter 1, 1 through 3, 
We have the call and the promise, and I believe that is when Abraham was justified. And I gave you some reasons from Genesis as well. In the text itself, there's an indicator. And then he leaves Ur to Haran. That's in chapter 11, verse 31. So it's out of sequence here. And chapter 12 records probably what happened in Ur. And he arrives at Shechem, chapter 12, 4 through 7, and we have a dating there, tells us he's 75 at that point. And then we have a promise of uh, the covenant and the promise that we have in chapter 12. We have the promise we stated in chapter 13, 14 through 17. Still in a promise form. On your outline sheet, kind of giving you most of the scriptures that pertain to the Abrahamic covenant, and some of them are on there. So that's the sequence. And... So he receives the covenant, and it doesn't give us a date, but if you put the dates between the time where we do have a date and the next reference to a date, he would be about 85. That's chapter 15 when the covenant is actually instituted. So the promise is now made into a covenant. Now it's very important to make that distinction Uh, partly because we're going to have to discuss a promise that we're going to look at in verse 13. So I'm in Genesis. This is all Genesis. And then Ishmael is born at 86. We have a clear dating for that one, and it appears right after the covenant we have the incident with Ishmael, chapter 16. That's why I come up with the about 85 dating. And the covenant is renewed when he's 99. This is chapter 17. Now this is very important because it's in chapter 17 that circumcision is instituted as part of the covenant. Okay, So Abraham is 99. He left Ur well before 75. So this is several years after justification by faith and faith alone. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's assuming you know this chronology. He's assuming you know that it doesn't come about until chapter 17, as good Jews that you are, right? So, chapter 17 is referred to in in Romans, and then we pick up from there. Then Isaac is born when he's 100, chapter 21, 1 through 5. Got it? So, it speaks of this fatherhood so that he might be the father of all. And it points even down to application to you and I, those who also follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham. So we have fatherhood. He's the father of the nation of Israel, physical and as indicated and sealed and validated by circumcision, literal circumcision. It's a pledge of nationality. That's what it validates. It validates nationality, not inward conversion necessarily. So it's a token of his headship of Israel over the nations, which will be eventual. We'll talk about that today. And the text also says he's the father of all that are justified by faith. And that is a spiritual fatherhood. So he's a physical, literal father. All of the DNA of the nation of Israel comes through him, but he's also a spiritual and non-visible, you might say, uh, father of those who have believed. And that includes Jewish people in the Old Testament 
as well as Jewish people in the New Testament and also Gentiles in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile being part of the church. Makes sense? So somewhat of a broad fatherhood of Abraham that Abraham or Paul is developing here. Concluding that passage, this is just to remind you again, justification equals forgiveness of sin. He developed that, particularly verses 7 and 8 with the, the example of David. That was stressed. Plus, this is a definition, if you want it in mathematical terms, this is from Linda. Justification equals forgiveness of sins. That removes the negative. Plus, there's a positive that's added or imputed to our account, credited to our account. The positive is righteousness. And that's in verse 3 and verse 6 of chapter 4. So that's kind of the conclusion that he's coming to. He also now is concluding that the Old Testament justification is before the law, before the law is by grace through faith apart from works. That's what he's established. Before the law. So it has nothing to do with the law. It comes before the law. The law is added later. And thirdly, Old Testament justification under law, in other words, after law is instituted, is by grace through faith apart from ordinances, apart from things like circumcision. So I think those are the conclusions we can draw from the passage we looked at last time. Make sense? So he's going to extend now. He's dealt with justification of Abraham, verses 1 through 12. Now beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, I think he's going to deal with the covenant of Abraham. And he's going to use something of an analogy. In other words, just as justification is by faith, everything pertaining to things of God, including the covenant, are by faith as well. And what he's going to deal with is this idea of promise. So we have the covenant of Abraham, 13 through 25, and beginning in verse 13, I've divided that into four parts. Four parts are on your outline sheet. First of all, we have the Abrahamic promise, verse 13, and then he's going to lay out the alternative of the law. It's either one or the other, and he's going to argue for the first. It's going to, he's going to argue for promise and faith as opposed to law and works. That's verses 14 through 15. And then 16 through 17, we won't get that far. In fact, I doubt we'll get through 14 even today. For 16 through 17, we have an assuring purpose for the covenant. And, and then... On the next outline sheet, we have an Abrahamic example. He's going to go back to Abraham again. And as you can see, I'm alliterating with A's there. So, verse 13, for, so he's continuing like a lawyer, making a case, laying out evidence, laying out his arguments here. So the for connects it to the preceding, so... If justification by faith is apart from not only law, but apart from ordinances, now he's going to take it another step for, and he's going to go on, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Very interesting. He's already talked about this broad fatherhood. Now he's even taking it even further than that. Not just the believing world, but the whole world here. We'll talk about it. 
for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law. It's not specified in the law. But through the righteousness of faith. Now it comes back to it. It comes as a result of what God has done. In other words, righteousness that is simply received and it's received by faith. Cannot do anything to earn it. Well, I should have asked you. It's a complete sentence. What's the subject of the sentence? I've already given it to you. Promise. What's the verb? Let me warn you, it's a trick question. What's the verb? It's a trick question. In the Greek text, there's no was. Uh, Very often in, in Greek, a stated verb is implied, and it's not there, so it's not there. But, obviously, it's implied, so the translators will translate it was. So Connie is, in fact, right, even though technically it doesn't appear specifically in the Greek text, but it's assumed. So the promise was something, and uh, the reason I highlight not through the law, if you read the Greek text, that's the first part of the sentence. That's put at the very beginning to kind of alert you to everything he's already talked about and to cement and to also kind of emphasize. And, and in the Greek text, it's different from English. In, in English, generally we structure a sentence, subject and then verb, and then whatever else follows. You might have preceding words and you might have a dependent clause before but generally the subject is early and the verb is next. And then everything else that follows. That's how we structure it in English. In Greek, word order, you could have the verb at the end and you could have, you could have the subject anywhere. Word order doesn't necessarily give you the structure. Okay, It's the forms that give you, whether it's a verb or a noun, and if it's a verb at the very end, it'll be a verb that has certain endings or prefixes to it, and if it's a noun, it'll be identified as nominative, etc. So, word order in Greek, one of the things that is characteristic is if you put something at the beginning, you're emphasizing it. In other words, this, you're calling attention to it at least, if not emphasizing it. What Paul is emphasizing here is this phrase... In the Greek text, it would be literally, for not through the law. And that's the theme that he's developed throughout the book up to this point. Justification cannot come through the law. So he puts it at the very beginning to emphasize it, and then he follows it with the promise. So that's the point of emphasis. Now, the next thing to notice in verse 13, there are three key terms that we've already looked at that recur, not only in verse 13, but in the rest of this passage as well. And you might take a look and see if you can figure out which three they are. First one, obviously, is what? Law and the concept of law. We've already seen it several times before in the book of Romans. In fact, it occurs in the book of Romans 73 times. It occurs very, very frequently. This is already about the halfway point, the 34th time that it's occurred in the book of Romans. So another important 
theological term that uh, Paul uses here, or key terms. So, not through law, again, then it occurs again in verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, again in 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, so there it occurs fourth time in the passage. Incidentally, just to add a little humor here, technically Moses was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud. So we think we're so sophisticated with all of our technological gadgets. Uh, Moses is not to be diminished in any way. So anyway, back to the key terms. The other key term, in, beginning in verse 13, is righteousness. We've seen that. In fact, that's the major term of the whole book. And I use righteousness in all of the divisions, broad outline of the entire book of Romans. It occurs 55 times in the book. Both law and righteousness occur more times in Romans than they do anywhere else in, in the New Testament. In this case, righteousness is the 13th occurrence of the 55 in the book of Romans, so it's going to occur many more times even after this passage. We've already seen it several times. Did you notice the third word? We haven't emphasized it as much, but it's another key word, faith. This is 14 times from uh, chapter 3, verse 22, to this passage ending with uh, verse 17. So in verse 13, we have the righteousness of faith. And then in uh, verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith, again, faith is made void. And then it occurs in verse 15, for this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. And then at the end of the verse, who are of the faith of Abraham. So there's the noun form four times. And then In verse 17, we have the verb form in the middle of the verse, whom he believed, even God, referring to Abraham. And it goes on even beyond the passage that we have on our outline sheet here, beginning in verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed. And it goes on 19, verse 20, verse 24 as well. So we'll talk some more about faith as we get further into this passage. Now, another key term not in this passage, but it's implied because the whole chapter in this section is dealing with justification. And just to remind you, we've said that justification involves two things, forgiveness of sin and the declaring of righteousness or the imputing to one's account righteousness. We have grace in this passage as well. Another key term that we've already looked at, undeserved favor. Everything that we have from God is by grace. We deserve condemnation, but we receive grace in Christ. Not in the passage, but also underlying it, redemption. I have it simply because I've got it on this sheet that we've used before. And also propitiation. So at least four key words in this passage beginning in verse 13 through 17. Let's take a look at the promise. What's in view there? And why does Paul use the word promise? 
because I think what he's referring to in this passage and all the way through verse 25 is the Abrahamic covenant. And the covenant is extremely significant. In fact, you've heard me say on several occasions that the Abrahamic covenant sets all of the parameters for all the rest of world history. And we're going to see that in this passage as we get further into it, and even in verse 13, as we'll look at in a moment. So the promise, you might ask, well, why doesn't he say the covenant rather than the promise? And I think one of the reasons, and there may be others, but the one that comes to my mind at least, is that he did not want us to mix up, because he's just discussed circumcision, and circumcision is the sign of the covenant He didn't in any way want us to mix those two up and think that in some way covenant is related more directly to works because what he's going to stress in the passage is Abraham believed God in terms of the covenant. He didn't do anything. In fact, nothing was required of Abraham. This is an unconditional covenant. Paul, by using the word promise, goes all the way back because he's dealing with justification by faith And I believe that in chapter 12, the first three verses, that's the promise. Later, it's made into a covenant, and part of the covenant is the sign of the covenant that we'll have, not in chapter 15, but all the way, as we saw, chronology in chapter 17. So he's dealing with Abraham's initial faith as a result of that initial promise that I believe he received in Ur of the Chaldees. So I think that's the main reason he uses promise here. But he's really referring, and as we see the other little phrase here, Abraham would be heir of the world, uh, that looks at a comprehensive view of this Abrahamic covenant. So let's take another look, and we've looked at this before, but let me just remind you in this context how important this is by stipulating what is involved in the Abrahamic covenant. First of all, all covenants have parties to the covenant. The church, believers in church age, are not parties of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we also know that we benefit from it, but we are not parties to it. The parties are God and Abraham and his descendants. So the covenant is between God and Abraham and and Israel, essentially, not believers. Now the stipulations, all covenants, because they're contracts, remember the nature of covenants, they're contracts, they have stipulations. It's a legal document, legally binding. God binds himself legally to perform the stipulations of the covenant. There are three basic stipulations. There is the seed. In other words, there will be descendants from Abraham, and those descendants will be a great multitude that Abraham cannot even count. It'll include not only the nation of Israel, but we'll see that it involves other nations as well. It also includes the land, and there are literally hundreds of passages in the Old Testament that spell out the land, but more specifically, because this is a contract, And like any contract has legal language that is specific, we have the specific description of the land. And on the map there, 
in uh, chapter 15, verse 18, we have the specific details, but in broad strokes, it stretches from, from the Euphrates River all the way to the river of Egypt, which is probably not the Nile, but a large portion of land that Israel has never completely occupied in all of its history, which even that in itself implies that there is yet a future fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So it includes a seed, it includes land, and it includes blessing. And the blessing, God intended that the nation of Israel bless all other nations. Now, in some measure, they've failed, but also it is through the nation of Israel that God has used as an instrument to bless the nations in at least two ways. And we know that God used them to produce the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, and also New Testament as well. The New Testament written by Jewish people. In other words, the nation of Israel. Secondly, we'll see, we'll take a look at Galatians 3. And in Galatians 3, Paul specifies the Abrahamic covenant, and he sees a fulfillment in Christ himself. In fact, he calls attention to the seed as being singular, referring to Christ. And it's through Christ that the nations are blessed, all nations. And we experience that benefit or that blessing when we receive Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life and all that comes with it. So those are the stipulations. Now also, very quickly, there's a ceremony in Genesis 15 that describes the ratification or the entering into the covenant And it involves the parties. That ceremony typically involved the parties of a covenant. But if you remember, the sacrificed animals that were cut in half, only one of the parties walked between the parts. That was God himself. God caused a sleep to fall on Abraham, so Abraham does not walk through, indicating that this is an unconditional covenant. Only God walked between the parts, making it unconditional. So there's also a sign. Now that doesn't come in chapter 15. That comes later when covenant is reiterated in chapter 17. The sign is circumcision. That's why the chronology is important because Paul has already talked about circumcision and justification is apart from circumcision contrary to the current thinking of Jewish people, not only in the New Testament time, but even before that. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. And just a quick reminder of covenants in general, we have another unconditional covenant, Noahic, and that precedes the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 9. Now the Abrahamic is a broad far-reaching covenant. That's why I use the umbrella, because there are three other covenants that are what I believe subsets or expansions of the Abrahamic covenant. In time, God works out the Abrahamic covenant and issues other covenants to reinforce the Abrahamic covenant. So the three aspects of seed, blessing, and land, which are the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant, will be followed by three other covenants. Now, counterpart to the Abrahamic covenant is the Mosaic covenant, which is temporary and very conditional. It's conditional on the obedience of the children of Israel. And quickly, the 
Palestinian, or some call it the land covenant, expands the land aspect and assures the nation of Israel that they will occupy the land and they are possessors of the land forever. The seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is expanded in the Davidic covenant because the seed will involve kings, and that's the essence of the Davidic covenant. And then we have the last one, which is the expansion of the blessing covenant, which is the new covenant, which is ratified at the death of Christ, but not instituted until Israel is converted. So it's future from church age. And I don't believe that we are under the new covenant. We are not parties to it. That's very clear in Jeremiah, and it's reiterated in the book of Hebrews. The church is not a party to the new covenant, but the new covenant was, is with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. So that's the promise, the Abrahamic covenant that's in view in Romans beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. So we'll talk some more about the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 13, for the promise, and here we have the recipients to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world. So it's to Abraham and to his descendants. So we need to emphasize that this covenant is far-reaching and re-emphasized over and over in the book of Genesis and again referred to later on outside of Genesis. So this next slide gives you the history of the covenant. I've reproduced the contents essentially on your outline sheet Because it's so important, I think it's good for you to have all of the references here to kind of the outworking of, first of all, the promise. And I think that's where Paul is picking up. It's in promise form in chapter 12, 1 through 3. And in the chronology of Genesis, I believe that that took place in Ur of the Chaldees. At the call of Abraham, he believed And then he leaves and journeys in the direction of Canaan, and then eventually ends in the land, and we see that recorded in chapter 12, verses 4 on. It's promised again in chapter 13, in the incident with the separating of Lot from Abraham, and Lot choosing the best of the land. Abraham is assured that God's going to take care of him by re-promising the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 13 verses 14 through 17. And then it's actually instituted in chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. We've described that. It's confirmed chapter 17, verses 1 through 21. And again to Abraham in chapter 22. This is after the ultimate test of faith of Abraham in chapter 21, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So in chapter 22, God reassures him and confirms the covenant again in verses 15 through 18. And it is so important, and like verse 13 says, to his descendants, it also is reinstituted to Isaac. And we have that record in Genesis 26, 3 through 4, and also including verse 24. And to the third generation, it is reinstituted to Jacob two times. And there were a couple of incidents. We won't get into them. But in chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, and then again in chapter 35, verses 9 through 12. 
So all of those are in Genesis. And then in the book of Exodus, if you remember in chapter 2, we have kind of the background to the Exodus, the raising up of Moses, and the story that leads up to the Exodus. And in the text, it says God remembered covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three are referenced because the covenant is reinstituted with each of the three patriarchs. So that's the background, and God remembering, it's not because he forgot. I think that's an anthropomorphism. It's something of what we would do. We would remember something, but God remembers in the sense in that now he's going to take action, and remember the covenant has not even been close to being fulfilled Israel's not in the land. They don't have the land. The only thing that has started are the descendants, and not very many. So God is now going to intervene to act to bring about the nation of Israel. And at the Exodus, we have the birth of the nation, essentially. Now, it's not a full-fledged nation until they conquer the land in the book of Joshua. But God is moving to begin to fulfill that. Now, much later, during the period of the kings, in 2 Kings 17.15, we have probably another reference to the covenant. It's not clear. It may be Mosaic, but if it's the Abrahamic covenant, it does reference the fathers. But this is at the very end of Israel's history in terms of their possession of the land. This is at the end of the kingdom age. It's a reference to them rejecting the covenant, but... The point I'm making is throughout their history, there are references here and there concerning this Abrahamic covenant. So it is very, very important. And also the fulfillment. We have partial fulfillment in Galatians 3. We'll come back to that passage and look at it. And also uh, perhaps a reference in Acts 3, 25 and 26. Now, we have an interesting phrase in 4.13. For the promise to Abram or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Where does that phrase come from? Can you think of any passage in the Old Testament where Abraham is called the heir of the world? Well, you can think and think, but you probably cannot come up with a specific passage with that identical phrase. But I think what we have here, I think Paul is giving us kind of a summation of the end product of the Abrahamic covenant. He's talking about the covenant, and it doesn't specifically specify heir of the world, but it is talking about, I think, kind of a summary of where the Abrahamic covenant ultimately ends, where Abraham will, in fact, be heir of not just the nation of Israel, not just nations, not just as this passage indicates believers in Messiah, but actually ownership and heirship of the whole world. Now, when we talk about heirship in the Bible or inheritance, you need to keep in mind the Old Testament concept and what it meant in the Old Testament to be heirs. And there are several passages we could look at, but we're running out of time here. But essentially, It is a little bit different from the concept that we have today where you have a will and you're stated in the will and then when the owner dies, then the inheritance is passed on, but you have to have the death of the original owner. 
before you inherit? Well, that's a little bit different in the Old Testament. Inheritance was a reference to the possession, the actual and real in time possession of the land, not waiting for somebody to die. So it refers to the distribution to the 12 tribes, and that was inheritance. That was their inheritance, that portion of land that God had allotted to them. And I think we have this same concept here in Romans 4.13. Abraham is heir of the world. He's going to be possessor of the entire earth. Now, the only place that that would find its fulfillment, as I've said, the Abrahamic covenant looks forward to an ultimate fulfillment that is yet future, even from our time. So I take it as kind of the end product that ultimately is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So keep in mind that this is ownership, this is possession of the land, and more than the land, the whole world. So it includes the land. We see that in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 7, and also in 18.21, specific references to the land. But it also includes, this heirship includes the nation itself. In other words, Israel. Abraham is father, as we saw in the prior passage, father of the nation. That's Genesis 12.2. A nation, a great nation, will come from him. And also a reference in 18.18. It also includes the descendants. So not just the land and not just the nation, but it includes uh, the, the descendants as well. And that's the seed. Genesis 15.5, again repeated in 22.17, but it goes even beyond the nation of Israel. Now, let's take a look at Genesis 17.4 and 5, and notice that it predicts that from Abraham will come nations. And I think ultimately Abraham would be viewed and is viewed as the father of many nations and ultimately all nations in the millennial kingdom. So in verse four, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. That's the Abrahamic covenant speaking to Abraham. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, not just the nation of Israel. And God changes his name to correspond with this. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And his name is related to the next phrase, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And verse 6 adds to it, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Now, I think in this context, in reference to the nations, these kings are not just the kings of Israel, in other words, several kings of Israel, but in this context, it seems to refer to kings of other nations as well. So this is a broad-based, a very comprehensive, far-reaching covenant that only a portion of it has been fulfilled, a major portion but there are still aspects of it that still look to the future. The land aspect looks to the future, but also this airship ultimately finds its fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. So it's kind of a comprehensive term. Now, turn to Galatians, and let's look at a passage in Galatians 3, because in this passage, 
Paul is specifically tying the Abrahamic covenant to Messiah. So ultimately it is fulfilled in Messiah and and then ultimately again in terms of the return of Messiah when he establishes the kingdom. Now look at verse 6. This is Galatians 3, 6. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same passage. Verse 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And then verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant has Gentiles in view as recipients. They're the nations, recipients of blessings that come through Abraham and then through his descendants and then the nation of Israel. And then specifically, we'll see later in the passage, the particular seed. So justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before Abraham to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That's Genesis twelve three. That's the promise. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So God in the Abrahamic covenant made provision for Gentiles way down the road in the future when the Messiah came. So verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So there's the reference to the covenant. And then verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham, so there's the tie, and to his seed, and notice the point that Paul is going to make here, he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. Now, if it's not clear the reference here, he makes it specific. That is Christ. In other words, what ultimately is in mind, in the mind of God, is there's going to be a specific descendant, singular, that is fulfilled in Christ himself. Now, it's also interesting, this is kind of a sidelight, but it speaks to inspiration here. When we speak of inspiration and also the authority of Scripture and accuracy of interpretation, notice grammar is involved. Notice interpretation involves the specifics of details like the difference between singular and plural. This is the point that Paul is making here and drawing application to the Messiah. So when we study scripture, we want to pay attention to every little detail of the text itself as Paul does here. So it's ultimately fulfilled in Messiah. And if we read on, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant, that's the Abrahamic covenant, previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Very similar to what we have in Romans. We're going to see that in verse 14 and 15. Verse 18, Galatians 4, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. Parallel to what we're looking at. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And we'll see next week in the text, we're going to develop that 
even further, but here's a parallel passage to it. Now, also look at uh, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and notice, heirs according to promise. He's still talking about the Abrahamic covenant, calling it a promise. But the interesting thing here is we are co-heirs with Abraham, Abraham being the heir of the world and its fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the last part of uh, 4.13, but through the righteousness of faith. And what he's saying, it's not through law, not through obedience, not through the Mosaic ordinances and standards, but through the righteousness of faith. That's the point here. It's a righteousness that comes as a result of faith in what God has promised. Verse 13. Now, that's a good place to stop. When we come back next week, we'll look at verses 14 and 15, where we have the alternative. In other words, it has to either be by promise or by law. So he's going to give the alternative and show why it cannot be by law. That's verses 14 and 15. So our closing thought today, a tremendous thought, particularly at the end of Galatians. We share in Abraham's great inheritance. What a tremendous concept. In the millennial kingdom, we will be heirs of the world along with resurrected Abraham. Let's close in a word of prayer. Anyone? Craig? Father God, wanting to understand your word, we just pray that you act according to your word. We just need the opportunity to get together that we would bless Abraham and his family to join you. Thank you for this class and really pretty.